Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we've got a bonus episode for you from a friend of mine who I met on a trip to Israel about a dozen years ago. His name is Joel Kramer, and he's an archaeologist. He lives in Amman, Jordan, and has been in the Middle East doing archaeological digs, uh, many times in Israel, studying there, and now teaching in a seminary in that area of the world. He has a fascinating new book talking about a number of intersections of areas from the Old Testament, from the patriarchs, into the New Testament in which the archaeological record uh, supports the biblical story. So this podcast was first reported as an interview on my YouTube channel, which again is in partnership with the Apologetics Program as a part of Talbot. So I think you're really, really going to enjoy this. And as usual, if you do, we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. So check out this episode on archaeology and the Bible. Is there evidence that the patriarchs actually lived? What about King David? What about the place where Jesus was born, he grew up, and the place where he died and was crucified? Well, today we're going to look at the archaeological evidence and how it intersects with the Bible. And we're here with a friend of mine who is streaming in all the way from Amman, Jordan, who's an archaeologist. He is a filmmaker, got a master's degree at the University of the Holy Land in archaeology, and has been practicing archaeology for 15 years, living in the Middle East 26 years, and has written just a great new book called Where God Came Down that we're going to talk about today. So Joel Kramer, really appreciate you coming on. Hey, absolutely. It's my pleasure. So before we get into some of the specific archaeological evidence and how it intersects with the Bible, tell me your story. Like, how did you become an archaeologist living in the Middle East with your family? Yeah, well, I was raised, I was raised in the Middle East. I grew up in uh, Saudi Arabia. I, I ended up in Utah, and um, I ended up pastoring there for uh, eight years. And uh, I lived in a town called Brigham City, Utah, and I used to make videos. They were outreach videos to Mormons. Hmm. Um, Bible versus a Book of Mormon and, and uh, such. And so uh, I was challenging the Mormon faith. And, and uh, one thing that the Mormons were challenging me with was, well, what about the challenges to your own faith? Interesting. Um, uh, you know, do you ever address those? Do you ever deal with those? And uh, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, you know, that was a pretty good challenge. So I moved to uh, Israel in 2007 to do just that, to to study. I, I ended up uh, studying in the university for 10 years under secular scholars um, with the idea of, you know, study under the, the ones that are making the criticisms of the Bible so that you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And um, and so that's how I got into archaeology. And, um, and I was privileged to work under a very active archaeologist uh, named Dr. Shimon Gibson, and so I got, uh, it, it was a blessing working under him because I, I was able to get a lot of experience because he um, was actively doing several digs. So I had the privilege to dig in Jerusalem for many, many seasons in Bethlehem and, and uh, different places. Joel, you and I met 10 years ago when I brought a group of students with our friend Eric Johnson to Israel. And you took us to the cave of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you took us to Jericho, a number of other places. And I appreciate that you have a master's, you have training, but you're actually involved in digs. So you have the practical work, you might say, and the academic work 
as well, which is unique. As a whole, looking at the field of archaeology, since this is your specialty, how would you describe the belief of many archaeologists when it comes to the Bible? Do they accept it? Do they reject it? Ambiguous? How would you capture as a whole that that position? Yeah, it's 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 uh, quite confusing. It was confusing to me as I um, initially was introduced to the field of biblical archaeology because uh, the name of the field makes it sound very positive towards uh, the Bible. And, um, and really, that's, that's not the case. It's um, one thing people have to understand about the field of biblical archaeology is that it is a secular field. And, um, and so, therefore, our expectations of, you know, what archaeologists believe should be in line with that. And so, um, you know, uh, there are a few... Bible-believing archaeologists um, that are out there working in uh, Israel and the land of the Bible, but the vast majority of biblical archaeologists are secular. Um, and so you have a, a clash of worldview. You have, you know, for me personally, I, I, my worldview is the Christian biblical worldview. And so I'm in a field that is the secular humanistic worldview. Those of you joining, we have some folks coming in from New Jersey, uh, different parts of the world from Kentucky. Uh, we're going to jump into your book, Where God Came Down, which by the way, Joel, I was telling you we chatted before, I'd seen your films, but not read your book. And I was just thrilled. It's so interesting. You're telling stories, supporting it visually. Um, I'm sharing some things with my family. I was like, hey, did you guys know this? I was talking to my wife about it last night. It's a great, great book. But before we dive into some of the specific archaeological finds, and then we're going to take some of the questions here, you used an illustration I thought was very helpful at the beginning of the book, where you described the relationship between the Bible and archaeology compared to a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle. Explain. Yeah, I'm a a very visual person, and uh, so I'm always wrestling myself to try to understand things, and, and I usually do that visually, and so... If you uh, say say you find a um, box with a uh, a jigsaw puzzle box and you open it up and all that's in there are five pieces uh, of a five hundred piece jigsaw puzzle, and uh, you take those five pieces and you look at those five pieces and you analyze them, um, what can you tell about this jigsaw puzzle based on only five pieces? And uh, the answer is uh, next to nothing. And, uh, and, and then yet, if you look at the uh, cover on the box, the, then there'll be a picture of the jigsaw puzzle that will show you what that is about. And if you use that picture, then you can go back to your five pieces and you can understand the context of where they come from in the puzzle. And so um, it occurred to me that, that this is like uh, archaeology, that the five pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are the archaeology. When you dig, you don't find whole buildings, you don't find whole cities, you don't find usually even whole pots. Um, you find pieces of everything, okay. and uh, and so, so but but those five jigsaw puzzle pieces demonstrate that there once was an actual jigsaw puzzle, uh, and and so uh, then the picture that's on the front of the cover of the jigsaw puzzle is like the Bible. The Bible gives us uh, the big picture of what happened in the past and where those things happened. And so um, when we dig in the ground as archaeologists and we find these pieces um, of evidence, 
we need a, a bigger context in order to understand them. And that's, that's where the Bible comes into. And sometimes, especially these days in the field, the secular field of biblical archaeology, things can get out of uh, order. And we can um, be taught or think that, uh, that it's actually the five pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that is teaching us about the jigsaw puzzle or testing the jigsaw okay. puzzle. Um, but really, it's, uh, it's the other way around. And so when, when, we're, when we're told things like, well, archaeology tests the Bible and its reliability. Uh, now, really, uh, the Bible is what's needed to understand the archaeology that's coming out of the ground. And, um, and so, um, you know, and the Bible can be used to test what archaeologists are telling us to determine whether it's true or not. <laughs> And so, um, so yeah, it's a matter of perspective. But the Bible between Mesopotamia and Egypt, the most important set of ancient texts that archaeologists use or should use to interpret what they're finding in the ground from the places and the periods that the Bible is talking about is the biblical texts. And if you start ignoring those, then you're just talking about speculation. And if you have 10 archaeologists looking about the same thing and not basing their understanding of that on an ancient text, then they're going to say 10 different things and there's going to be a lot of confusion. And what clears up the confusion, how you can learn biblical archaeology is to use the Bible. So very, very quickly, the puzzle piece, we have five out of 5,000 or whatever. It's the picture that helps place where those go without the picture we don't have a map so to speak so if the archaeological world rejects the bible which we would consider a map they're going to interpret the data very very differently so really it comes back to the worldview somebody's bringing to the archaeological dig and the data more than anything is that a fair assessment absolutely it's uh you know somebody who believes in god believes in the supernatural, believes in miracles, is going to interpret um, evidence, archaeological evidence, completely differently than somebody who doesn't believe in any of those things. And, and um, you know, that, that five pieces from a 5,000 uh, puzzle, piece puzzle, um, is relevant to archaeology in Israel because the estimation of how many of the biblical sites and how many how much of each site has been dug over the the whole time that archaeology has been going on in Israel is about estimated at about one percent wow so um and so what that means is if if anybody says well you know that can't be true because that's never been found well we're only talking about a one percent sample that's been dug out of the ground um, in all the places that could be dug in the land of the Bible. And so, um, and, and, and yet, it's amazing to look at how much evidence we have that comes out of just that 1% sample. I remember an article years ago from Edwin Yamauchi, and he said 1% of the Holy Land has been excavated. Of sites that have been excavated, only a small percentage of those actually sites have been excavated. Of the small percentage of sites excavated, only a small percentage of that has been reported. And of those reported, only a small percentage of that has made its way so much to the popular world. And I thought, my goodness, that helped put a framework, so to speak, in our expectations 
of what archaeology would reveal. Now, we're going to come to your book, Where God Came Down, Joel. Let me go off script for a second, because one of the questions was about where's a dig you're working on right now and what have you found? When I went to Israel 10 years ago with you, one of my favorite things is you took us to Jericho. Because the traditional story is Kathleen Kenyon in the middle of the 20th century, roughly, pretty much dismissed that Jericho matches up with a biblical record. Without going into all the detail, what is just one or two things you found on site digging there that makes you think, ah, that's a little bit too quick? There is some evidence that supports the biblical account. You mean at Jericho specifically? At Jericho, yeah. Yeah, because I haven't ever actually dug at Jericho, but, um, okay. but yeah, but, but, the um, but, but I've studied Jericho for years and years and years. And, um, and it, it is a good example that, you know, we got to look at things in, in the big picture. Um, first of all, one thing we focus on is everything that the archeologists disagree about. What's amazing is everything that the archeologists agree about. So think about Jericho. They all agree that um, Jericho is Jericho. How do they okay. know that Jericho is Jericho? Uh, well, the only ancient text that talks about Jericho from the time period, you know, Joshua and the conquest is the Bible. So the only way that they even know that they're talking about Jericho is through the Bible. And uh, everybody agrees that Jericho was Canaanite. And then something happened. And then later in history, it became Israelite. And so uh, what happened there? Well, maybe we should go to the one historical, you know, the, the historical document that we have that tells us what happened. Then um, everybody agrees that the city wall of Jericho collapsed. You have a fallen wall at Jericho. And what, of course, is Jericho famous for in the Bible? It's famous for the walls that came tumbling down. And so really, when you boil down to what, uh, what in this case, Kathleen Kenyon is uh, saying critically about the Bible She's she's saying that, well, even though this is Jericho, even though this was Canaanite and became Israelite, even though we have a fallen wall and a burned destruction here, the Bible can't be true because there's this one particular kind of pottery that that uh, is from Cyprus that wasn't that I didn't find here. So um, really, it's uh, it's 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 just an illogical, ridiculous claim that in the big picture, everything fits. And so they're going to try to disqualify it, you know, based on some little tiny detail that here, here's, here's a possibility. Maybe the archeologist is wrong Hmm. and the Bible is right. You know, that's a possibility right there. And so, and so, uh, yeah, you have all these examples of um, of these minute details that nobody understands that they're trying to use to um, to claim that the Bible uh, doesn't get it right when a- ignoring the big picture of how is it that this the, this the biblical text told archaeologists what they would find if they ever got around to digging Jericho. Uh, what they would find uh, under the ground. And they and it told us what would be found, this fallen wall, thousands of years before archaeologists came along and dug it and found a fallen wall. Um, a seven-year-old would understand that gotcha. as evidence. <laughs> and that gotcha. would be the end of the story. You know, they they wouldn't understand this whole explanation about imported pottery from Cyprus and, and, uh, and why that... Uh, you know, discounts the Bible. And so 
um, really, when you look at the criticisms of the Bible, they, they're really groundless. They're not intimidating. That's awesome. I remember you describing that. Um, thanks for the clarification. You didn't dig there, but I remember you took our group and we walked around Jericho and you pointed yes. out when they find the city, it describes in the Bible, they burnt it. Well, there's burnt pottery. The grain matches up with the season that it was. So these kind of findings that I remember you pointed out to us was really helpful. Now I show your video and then we're going to move back to the book to my students. Tell us the name very quickly when you go on site and describe Jericho for those watching if they want to check it out. Yeah, it's called uh, Jericho Unearthed. And um, when I got to Israel, uh, the first question that I, I asked the question to the professors that I was studying under, and I said, what's the number one challenge to the Old Testament? Wow. And they said, Jericho. So I started with Jericho and did that film um, and and brought in uh, the, the only one that was still alive that had worked um, as a staff member under Kathleen Kenyon and uh, he stayed with me for three weeks and and uh, wow. so so yeah it was a uh, and I've been studying that site ever since it's it's a uh, it is the number one challenge to the Bible but it should be the number one example of how the Bible correlates with uh, with the archaeological evidence I mean it's amazing um, you have a city that the wall fell down that was burned that laid abandoned and then was occupied by Israelites. And what does the Bible say the events were? Well, they say that the, the wall fell down, that the Israelites burned the city, that they, that Joshua put a curse on it, it laid abandoned until uh, the time of Ahab when the Bible says it was finally rebuilt as a city. So that's the chronology of events that you have in the Bible, and that's the chronology of events that you find in the ground. Uh, they What's match the up. problem? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what? Let's let's do a whole show on this in the future. Let's have you back and do that. I think it would be really yeah, really absolutely. interesting. I think people would enjoy it. So let's jump back to your book where God came down, and you start with the patriarchs. And one of the standard narratives, at least that I've read, correct me if I'm wrong, that many in scholarship completely dismiss these stories as being mythological. You take issue yeah. with that, for example, believe we actually have the very campsite where Abraham yeah. stayed, known as Mamre, explain why that site is significant first, biblically speaking. Okay, uh, yeah. First of all, to, to the claim that you hear all the time that there's no archaeological evidence for Abraham. Okay, uh, well, first of all, Abraham lived in a tent 4,000 years ago. <laughs> you know, archaeology okay, is fair. the study of ancient people <laughs> from what they've left behind. So what does a guy living in a tent 4,000 years ago leave behind? Gotcha. Um, we, what should we expect? We should expect nothing. And uh, in fact, I hang out with, uh, with Bedouin. I've been hanging out with Bedouin for years and years and years. And I can assure you, it is very difficult to figure out where a Bedouin campsite was a week after they move, <laughs> much less 4,000 years after they, because they don't have a bunch of excess stuff that they leave behind. Everything that they have, they use. And when they move their camp, I mean, they're gone. You're, you're, where, where were they? And so it's, it's really a hypocritical statement that you hear over and over again. Well, there's no archaeological evidence for the patriarchs. Well, what would we expect? So that's why it's so amazing that there is archaeological evidence for Abraham. Now, why... Um, because for most nomads that lived in the ancient past, there isn't. So why with Abraham? 
And, uh, and the answer is, is because God came down and met with Abraham and promised him promises. And, and uh, one of the main promises that he made to Abraham uh, at Mamre, um, Genesis chapter 18, is he, he promised Abraham that you will become something more than you are right now. You will become a great and powerful nation. Well, archaeologically, great and powerful nations do leave things behind that show that they mm. exist. And so we know, we know uh, Abraham uh, archaeologically through what he becomes, just as Mamre we know uh, as an archaeologically uh, archaeological site because of what it becomes. So we have this amazing um, event where God comes down and speaks to Abraham and, and his wife, Sarah, and promises them a son. And then we have, uh, we have the Israelites remembering that. And so they, they built a structure around that site to remember and to commemorate that important event in their history. And then we have um, Herod the Great, for example, uh, building on that site and enclosing it with a wall to to please his Jewish subjects. Um, and of course, people, the Jews continue to worship at that place and visit that place. And then we have uh, in Constantine's day in the Christian era, the Byzantine period, we have uh, one of four churches that, that Constantine builds in the land uh, there at Mamre. And so, um, and, then, and then we have uh, Islam also honor the site, which is important because the Palestinian town of Hebron, as it, as it grew out to that area, didn't cover it over, but, but um, grew around it. They recognized it as sacred ground. And so what you have then is you have this stack, one thing on top of another, of all these different periods and the structures that were built that date all the way from the Islamic period, all the way back in time, archaeologically, okay. to the time of Abraham, who built, uh, who built an altar there. That's what he left behind in his campsite. The Bible specifically says that when God made him that promise, he built an altar. And it was that altar that, that um, was then being commemorated and other structures being built around it. And, of course, that original altar was was used for all kinds of things like pagan rituals and, and, and it was destroyed and rebuilt and all these kinds of things. But you can see in the site itself that it is built around a center point and that center point is where Abraham's altar was. So if, if, uh, if, if the claim that Abraham is mythological is true, then you have to explain what this stack of archaeology is that commemorates some event that dates all the way back to 4,000 years ago. And, and what is the reason for that? Why have, why have people um, considered this ground sacred for so long, for thousands and thousands of years? You have to give an explanation for that, which, of course, they don't. And, um, and you know, the best explanation, again, is in the historical text that talks about that place and what happened there. And, uh, and so it, it stands as an archeological monument to the realness of, of Abraham, the father of our faith. So, so connect for me the place itself. How do we know what is labeled today as Mamre is the site Abraham 
was at. I see that there's church fathers, there were Muslim scholars and others going back. But what originally tells us they got the site right, because if they got it wrong and people believed it, and then these others came after them, it'd be like, oh, that makes sense, because they trusted the earliest sources. What's the chain of command that gets us back as close as we can to the events themselves? Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, I mean, one of the main things with a site like Mamre is when the Bible describes where Mamre is. Mamre is in the okay. land that is controlled by the city of Hebron. And so it would uh, it would be a problem if these different commemorated sites from these different periods were in several different places so that you have three or four or even two places that are called Mamre and that are understood to be the campsite of Abraham. We don't have that in this case. We have them not in different places. We have them stacked on top of each other. Okay. And so the archaeology that shows that the site was occupied at the time of um, Abraham, which is pottery, and this altar um, that was built there, uh, that's what is being commemorated in each one of these periods that are building walls around it and commemorative walls around it. And, and then we have uh, also a whole um, list of historical sources, as you mentioned, that are, that are speaking about this place. And so it's, it's, it's uh, actually quite obvious because you, um, you have basically three archaeological sites that are mentioned in the Hebron area, the city itself of Hebron, the um, uh, Mamre, which was the campsite of Abraham, and then where the patriarchs were buried at Machpelah. And you have all three of them uh, that, that have been found. So when you're asking the quest- question, well, you know, this famous person was buried in this tomb or buried in this cave or had this campsite of all the places around here that could possibly be that campsite or be that cave that they were buried. How do we know which one it is? Well, it's the one that has this commemorative stack of archaeology built over the top of it that is saying uh, it's right here. And it goes back, the potter we have and other archaeological evidence fits that time and place so you can rule out other options. I think some people forget how small Israel is. I realize you can take a plane across it not that long at all. It feels like the U.S. or Alaska, there's endless space, but there's really only so many options. So in some ways, it's just, isn't this kind of a process of just ruling out, following the data? And when it comes to memory, yeah. these pieces just kind of fit together. Yeah, and there there are a few instances where there are competing uh, sites, you know, where okay. where the same event is claimed to have happened at two different places. Just like in manuscript evidence, we have situations where two manuscripts are conflicting. uh, They're saying different things. So what's the general rule of thumb with manuscript evidence? Well, the general rule of thumb is that we take the earlier manuscript. And it's the same way in archaeology. If you have two sites that are commemorating an event, you take the older one, the one that goes back... um, Further, a great example of that would be the garden tomb and uh, and the site, which is now the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Both of them are saying, you know, this is the tomb of Jesus where he was raised in Golgotha and everything. So which one do we take? Well, one of them uh, archaeologically goes back in the stack to uh, the time of the events in the New Testament, and the other one starts in the late 1800s. So if you're thinking manuscript evidence, you would take the first century manuscript over the one that uh, the first copy is in the 1800s. 
Let's take a couple more from the Old Testament, then we'll jump to the New Testament. I just noticed that our books sure. line up. It almost looks like we could be in the same room together. <laughs> almost, not perfectly, but we're actually 7,000 yeah. miles away because I'm in Southern California. You are in Amman, Jordan, where you're studying and actually a part of archaeological digs. Those of us join us, we're here with Joel Kramer. Uh, archaeologist, and we're talking about his recent book where God came down and some of the evidence pointing towards the Bible getting it right, archaeologically speaking. Now, you mentioned Machpelah. I've been to Israel four times. I've studied archaeology to a degree. I don't know how I missed it, but I was reading your book and you said it is the second most revered or holy site in Judaism. Can you explain why it's so significant? And then we'll jump to some of the evidence that we actually have that site known today. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not on the tourism trail, as you said, but it's uh, but it's it's definitely um, you know, for the Jews that live in the land, they visit it quite frequently, and uh, and so forth. And it's um, you know, Mamre would also be a very important site to them, but they they don't have access to Mamre like they do uh, to Mechpelah because of the the political situation over there. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's the burial place of the patriarchs. It's uh, it's very similar to um, the Temple Mount in that um, it's okay. never been excavated because it's a it's an important site to both the Jews and the Muslims, and so to excavate uh, at the Temple Mount would probably start World War III, and the same is the case, uh, you know, in in Hebron, and so which is where Machpelah is, and so. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's where Abraham and Sarah and, um, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah are buried. Um, not okay. Rachel, cause if we'll remember the Bible, uh, says that she was buried, um, near Bethlehem. And so when you look at the specific, uh, patriarchs and matriarchs that are buried at Machpelah, they are the lineage of King David who ruled there at Hebron for seven and a half years. And of course, they're also the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. And so the, the, um, it's, it's pretty amazing experience when you go there because Herod the Great built walls, commemorative walls around that site, just as he did at Mamre, just as he did at um, Mount Moriah. The Temple Mount, and um, when you're standing there in front of the wall at uh, Machpelah, you wouldn't know whether you were there. It's like our bookshelves; you wouldn't know if you were there or at the Western Wall because the the stones, you know, look the same. And um, and so, uh, and of the places that that Herod the Great built up and commemorated, the one that's the best by far preserved is. Machpelah. And that's what another okay. reason why Mamre is so important because Mamre has been excavated down to bedrock. Gotcha. Whereas the other two sites that are like it, Mount Moriah, Temple Mount, um, and, and Machpelah that have never been excavated, we, we can learn uh, a lot about them through Mamre that has been. So what, what's one or two of either, say, early church fathers or like an archaeological digger discovery that tells us we got Machpelah right where they actually were buried? Like, how do we know that wasn't added later on? Yeah. So, so, um, so when you're at the city of Hebron, 
um, and you're looking out to the surrounding hills and, and uh, you know, which their bedrock is showing, like in any ancient city in this part of the world, you have tombs. Um, you know, the living live inside the city and the dead are buried uh, on the ridges outside surrounding the city. So you have lots of tombs and you have lots of caves for burial. So when you're looking out there, um, one of these caves has the biblical patriarchs buried in it, the Bible tells us at okay. Hebron. So how do you know which one, which one it is? Well, it's probably the one that's got this massive wall built in the first century BC around it <laughs> that is commemorating that cave as that okay. thing. So then when, then when somebody like Josephus or, or somebody is mentioning uh, that, that place and what it looked like, you know, in their day, you know what they're talking about. It's obvious because they're they're talking about the site that was commemorated in their day, because of course Herod the Great was before Josephus, for example. And um, right, and so you you have uh, it's same thing. How do you know of all the hills that are in Jerusalem? How do you know which one is Mount Moriah? It's the one with the big, massive, ancient commemorative walls that are built around it. You know that that served as a platform for the buildings to be built on top of. And so it's, it's obvious there's not, you know, five tombs commemorated in such a way. There's one tomb commemorated okay. in such a way. And then it's discussed in historical sources as, as being Macapella. And what else would it be? Okay. So l- let me play the skeptic and then we'll move to Mount Moriah. Uh, this sure. is 4,000 4, years ago. And you describe walls built in the first century BC. That gets us halfway yes. to the time of Abraham. So we're trusting a source as far from Abraham as we are from the time of Jesus without the tools we have today to study things archaeologically. So is that where we're just saying, yeah, they probably got it right. We're trusting them. What would be the basis for trusting those first walls that were put up and the tradition? Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, and you know, the way I would answer that is, well, that's what Mamre would have looked like before it was excavated. You would have seen the, uh, the Herodian walls sticking out from the mound of ruins, um, you know, at that time. And you would have said, huh, this must be something significant. Look at these, these walls from the first century BC. Then uh, archaeologist named Mater comes in and he excavates down and then he finds in the layers underneath that first century BC he finds uh he finds a gate that's from an earlier period that that was an enclosure that was most of it was destroyed when Herod the Great built his enclosure but there's enough of it left to know there was an enclosure then you keep going down from there and you find the pottery that dates to the time of Abraham and so um and so that has been done for Mamre but it can't be. It hasn't been done for Mechpella or for uh, the Temple Mount because, again, it would probably start World War Three. So, gotcha. So, but but even and the same is true with the Temple Mount. Even though we can't excavate there archaeologically, there's still plenty of archaeology that you can see without even digging. So you could look at it the other way. Um, you know, it wasn't. Herod, Herod the Great didn't come along, or in his time, they didn't come along and just, you know, randomly pick some. There was something there that was that that was commemorative of that cave. Um, there were people visiting it for centuries and centuries okay. before, 
And so his archaeology, you know, he, he, he wasn't a great father, he wasn't a great husband, but he was a great builder. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. so his walls still stand to this day. And unless we can get in there and do some archaeological work, uh, then, then the specific questions of what comes before that can't be answered. But if we know that the archaeology goes all the way back to Abraham at Mamre, there's no reason to think that if we could dig the Temple Mount and Machpelah, that we would find a uh, similar evidence. Okay. So in a sense, when I when I did my research on the apostles, I came up with a probability scale, and like the uh-huh. martyrdom of Peter was as high as possible because it's consistent, early sources, and nothing that contradicts his early martyrdom, and even where he was martyred. But then I get to some other apostles a little later. I think it's more probable than not but not as strong. So Mamre, because they've dug there, there's a very strong case. Machpelah is the most likely place, but since we haven't dug there, we'd have to admit that our confidence is a little less than Mamre. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that would be fair, but um, but the other thing about it is is that there's not competing. We know that the okay. patriarchs were real people. They died, they were buried. Okay. Um, we know they were buried uh, in a cave, um, that was bought from the people in Hebron, and so it's right next to Hebron. And so we have one commemorative cave that the walls that, without digging, go back to the first century B.C. We don't have any other site that says, oh, this is the cave that the patriarchs were buried in. So there really isn't a controversy about it where there might be, in what you were studying, there might be controversy about that and people arguing all different okay. things. I'm not aware of anybody arguing that that, that Machpelah isn't actually, you know, the site. I mean, of course, the scholars that don't believe in the Bible and believe that it's all mythology aren't going to sure. believe in it. But for anybody that does, there would be no controversy. I don't know of any controversy with Machpelah. And again, the ones who are saying that there isn't any evidence for the patriarchs is ignoring the the big picture reality that the cities that are talked about in the patriarch narratives exist and that these um these holy sites where god came down as i called my book and and spoke to uh these the patriarchs and 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 met with them and and therefore these places were commemorative that stack of archaeology has to be explained what's it doing there okay why is that cave being commemorated if it's not what it what it uh what the bible is saying you know it is that makes sense we've talked about three archaeology things from the old testament they all start with them mamre machpelah mount moriah you hinted at all towards abraham which is fascinating we're going to skip the chapter on king david you have a chapter that talks about uh, confidence where his tomb was and where uh the not only the temple obviously but where his own palace was. And I was there a few years ago, and I remember our guide took us through and said, you go back just a few decades, and a lot of people doubted that David even existed. But then they find yeah. the the, the, the Tela, uh, the little inscription, so to speak, the Tel Dan inscription, and now we have yeah. the palace of David. If people want to see visuals and a good case for this, check out uh, Joel's book, Where God Came Down. Let's shift to the New Testament now for, for sake of time. Nazareth. Uh, pretty obvious question, but why is this significant? And you talk about uh, some modern day temples and archaeology over the years. At the very bottom, they find something very significant from the first century. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, it's uh, it, it's the same thing that we've been talking about. It's uh, the evidence for Nazareth is is one thing on top of another, and so if you take the layers. Um, as they dug down, first of all, they had to remove a, a, an old church. They, they tore it down that was built in the seven, 1730 so that they could build the one that stands today. So when they got that out of the way, then they could dig down layer by layer. So they, they dug down through the ruins of a Crusader church, which you can see, still see. Then they got down to a Byzantine layer where there was a Byzantine church. And then um, and, and the Crusader and Byzantine church were oriented as they usually are towards the east, towards the rising sun. Then remarkably underneath that were the ruins of a, um, a synagogue. And, um, and, and the floor of the synagogue was oriented in a different direction than the church floors above it. Okay. And it was oriented south. Now, why would... Why would a building be oriented south? Well, all of the synagogues uh, in that area um, and, and like around Galilee and that area that have, have been dug face south because they're facing the temple in Jerusalem. And so um, and then we have the mosaic floor, a uh, large patch of it that is preserved from that synagogue. Uh, and then um, then we have all kind of symbolism that is uh, Christian in nature you know, like crosses and, uh, and whatnot. And then, and graffiti that mentions Mary and, and, uh, and we have, um, the name of Jesus represented and, and so forth. And then underneath that from the house itself that once stood there, we have a mikvah, which is a Jewish ritual bath. So, um, from my own, from my own experience of excavating, Um, you know, I've excavated in a couple of villages. And so how do you know when you're digging a house, how do you know if that is a Jewish house? Well, one of the major ways is if you find a mikvah, um, this Jewish ritual bath, and you know that that's a Jewish house. And so that is what's left because you got to keep in mind that, um, you know, we, we, you've been to Israel and you see uh, pottery everywhere. Okay. And you pick up a piece of pottery well, that, that piece of pottery is evidence that once there was a whole pot. And that's the way that archaeology works. You're not finding entire buildings. You're finding pieces of them that are left. And if, if you think about it logically, the further you go down in your layers, the less you would expect to find intact. Makes because, sense. of course, it's being rebuilt and rebuilt on top of each other and stones are being reused in there. They're digging down to the bedrock to put their walls in like the previous buildings did, uh, builders did. And so um, so at Nazareth, again, we have this stack of archaeology where the um, archaeology itself goes down through these periods all the way back to the time of the event that is being talked about in the New Testament with the announcement to Mary that um, she's going to conceive and have the uh, Messiah. So, and you don't have stacks of archaeology all over. You have one stack that's been commemorated. And so today we have the Church of Annunciation built in the in the 50s and 60s standing over this site. And they, they did a great job as far as preserving the archaeology that had been uncovered so that when you walk into that church today, you can uh, go up and look down and you can see 
um, oh, wow. the floor from the synagogue and you can see the apse from the Byzantine church and you can see the wall and the apse is from the crusader building. And so you can see, you can see the mikvah. And, um, and so it's, it's an amazing site. It's a, it's a stack of evidence saying physical evidence saying this right here hmm. is where this event that you're reading in the Bible happened. A uh, couple of things. There's quite a few people saying they really appreciate your work. So just want to encourage you. Uh, thanks for all that you do. So uh, they're enjoying that and your conversations here. Last question, this one, then we'll move to another one. What about the name Nazareth? How do we know that's actually the city itself going back to the first century? Well, we have uh, we have name preservation. Um, okay. A lot of the a lot of the cities that um, that we're reading about in the Bible were called uh, the same thing down through the different time periods, and um, and so we have a lot of the same names that are in the Bible that are still called today, and um, and so and then uh, what's really interesting is because Hebrew was of course spoken. Um, and then over time, you know, Greek took over Aramaic and then Greek and and uh, and then um, even in the Roman period, Greek, because we're talking about the Greek eastern side of the Roman Empire. And then um, and then eventually Arabic was spoken in these areas. So when um, when a when a city Nazareth is Palestinian now, when a city is is called by a name that doesn't mean anything in Arabic, then um, it's preserving usually the ancient name of that okay. site. So we have many, many examples of name preservation uh, uh, in in the land. And so um, Jerusalem would be one, Bethel would be one. Okay. And, and we also have Nazareth mentioned in an inscription that was found in a synagogue in uh, Caesarea. And so we we do have an inscription mentioning Nazareth, and and uh, and then we have the town of Nazareth, which it hasn't been lost. It's kind of like comparing the Bible manuscripts to uh, to some other manuscript that got lost and had to be discovered again. Mamre would fit in that description where it's okay. It was kind of lost for a while. People weren't sure what these ruins were, and then they were excavated and realized, oh, this is Mamre. Um, whereas a, a site like Nazareth or Jerusalem is like the Bible. It never was lost. It, it always gotcha. um, was passed on down to present time from ancient times. And that's what these names um, were because there were pilgrims visiting Nazareth, visiting Bethlehem, visiting Ju Jerusalem from the time of the events, right after the time of the events until today. So a lot of, cities over time change in their names like St. Petersburg wasn't always St. Petersburg but you're saying when it comes to Nazareth this name has been preserved through the archaeological record the written record back to the first century and potentially earlier so there really is no debate that we have Nazareth as a place is that is that fair yeah yeah okay exactly yeah and, and even okay. Jerusalem was called Aelia Capitolina for a while but but the understanding that Aelia Capitolina was the Jerusalem of the Bible was never lost. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. By the way, there's a quick comment here. It's written in Spanish. It says, Sean, thanks for your work. We need to get this translated into Spanish. I believe in YouTube, there's a feature you can go in that will put in the language in Spanish. 
maybe somebody can comment and uh, help me out here if I'm mistaken, but I believe there's a way to do that if you trust YouTube translation. Um, side note, <laughs> let's keep going. Uh, one of the other New Testament places you talk about is the birthplace of Jesus. Now, yeah. I'm going to read to you what you wrote because I know this was intentional, but it sounds pretty strong. You said, quote, the textual and archaeological evidence places the birthplace of Jesus at Bethlehem into the category of historical fact. Now, I'm yeah. not going to ask you why the birthplace of Jesus is important. Actually, I will, for sake of prophecy, very quickly tell us why does it matter that we have the place? And then let's look at the evidence defending that claim. Um, well, I mean, it, it's it's amazing. Uh, the fulfillment of prophecy is an amazing and persuasive uh, evidence for uh, the Bible being true, obviously. And so in order to establish that, first of all, you have to show that um, a prediction is really a prediction. So um, Micah 5.2, which is the passage where Micah predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and predates the birth of Jesus by 125 years. So there's the evidence that this is this is really a prophecy. This is really a prediction. Gotcha. Um, and so then on the other side, is or, in order to show that it was fulfilled, then you have to um, uh, show that it's that the birth of Jesus is historical and that he is a historical person and that he really was born in Jerusalem. So or sorry, in Bethlehem. And uh, and so Bethlehem is is uh, in particular uh important to me because because I worked there and uh, excavated in the Church of Nativity and just next to it. And so I've, I've uh, had several seasons as a staff member digging there. And um, I dug under two uh, co-directors in that project, both of them secular scholars. One is a secular um, historian and uh, the other one is a secular archaeologist. And, and I uh, go into the quotes with them because, but, but basically secular historians don't, uh, dismiss that Jesus was born in, you know, Bethlehem. Uh, I do hear that argument in America. It seems like in America, the, the main argument against Jesus is that he's a myth in this part of the world. You don't ever hear that. You'd be laughed out of a room. If you ever said that, that would just be ridiculous. Oh, yeah, that'd be like me trying to argue that Mormonism isn't true because Joseph Smith never existed. Hmm. See, uh, it doesn't work. And so nobody argues that over here. And um, nobody argues that Jesus wasn't a real person. Where would Christianity have come from if, if he wasn't a real person? And so, of course, they don't believe that he was the Messiah. They don't believe that he was God. They sure. don't believe in those kinds of things. But they certainly believe that he was a historical person. And every historical person's born somewhere. Why not <laughs> okay. the place that the historical documents okay. uh, point to? And so that's what I asked Joan Taylor, who is the uh, the historian. And she, you know, and it's a stupid question that I'm asking her. She's looking at me like, you know, I'm, so how do we know that Jesus was really born here? And she's looking at me like, what, what are you asking me that for? I mean, what do you think we're digging here for? <laughs> you know, um, all the historical sources say that Jesus was born here, both in the Bible and extra biblical uh, sources. And so there, there really isn't a debate 
on on that, at least in this part of the world. And if students are being taught that Jesus is a myth or that he wasn't born in Bethlehem, then that's just some irresponsible teacher teaching that, you know, without any basis to do so whatsoever. Like I said, you're going to get laughed out of the room. So one thing that I do in my book is I I interview a Jewish um, archaeologist, and because I because I want to make the point that that even this well known Jewish archaeologist, yeah. I ask him the question, "Hey, where was Jesus born?" And he's looking at me like, "What are you asking me that question for?" He was obviously born in Bethlehem. That's where all the historical sources. That's where the archaeology points and and so and so it's not an issue it's not a controversy it's it's a historical fact it's also an archaeological fact because um when we dug uh bethlehem you know we're digging inside of a church but that church is sitting on top of a tell an ancient ruin okay and so we could dig uh down through the floor of that church which we did and then down to uh, the material and the village that uh, uh, from the time of Jesus, and then you can keep going. You can go down to uh, the time of David and, and find material from the time of David because that's also where David was born and where he was from. And you can keep going even beyond that, you know, uh, back to the time of Abraham and back to the time when it was a Canaanite city and and so forth. So, uh that's why I asked that question to Joan Taylor, a secular historian. That's why I asked the same question to my archaeology professor. Uh, are you sure that Jesus was born here? And he's like, what, what, what do you think we're digging here for? Of course he was born here. you know. And uh, that's why I asked it also to a Jewish um, archaeologist. And, I, and, and, you know, in my interview with him, I say, I'm asking you this because you're a Jewish archaeologist. And he says, that, that, that's, that's good, you know. And uh, so where was Jesus born? Well, obviously he was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> sure. So uh, nobody yeah, is me, arguing that he was but let me read the born quote somewhere from, else. Read the quote yeah, from your sure. book. He says, uh, you say, where personally do you believe Jesus was born? And this is Barquet, who's a Jewish yeah. archaeologist. He says, under the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, there are some caves. And those cavities were in use in the first century beyond any doubt. Uh, For very important places, very significant places in Christian faith, I would regard the traditional place as authentic. That's pretty significant. That's a great quote. And you're saying that's pretty much the standard view among archaeologists, at least on this issue, even though they differ on others. That's a standard. uh, Yeah, that's a standard understanding, because what he means by the tradition is he means the historical sources that we have that say where Jesus was born, all say that he was born in Bethlehem. That's why people have been coming to that site for thousands of years and commemorating it and building it up. And that's why Constantine built a church over it. And, uh, and so to, to try to change that now it w- would be impossible. How would you do that? Um, you would claim he was born somewhere else. Well, there's nothing commemorating it and there's no historical sources that say that that's the case. It would just be your, your modern take on it and you would be laughed out of the room. And to say that okay. he didn't exist is, is in the same category. So it's, it's been interesting to me, the, the arguments and the things that people talk about and say and argue in America are quite different than um, what they, what they argue about and, and talk about over here. That is really interesting. By the way, you got what I would presume would be maybe be uh, the greatest compliment you could get being an archaeologist that is you remind someone of indiana jones 
So I'm thinking that's probably, I mean, what, what's cooler than that? So uh, you got an awesome, uh, you know what? There's a ton of questions in here about Sodom and Gomorrah, about the Copper Scroll. I'm thinking, why don't we have you come back and we'll just do kind of a live Q&A. I realize you haven't studied all of these issues and know some more than others, but we can do the one of the conquest. It'd be fun to have you on and just kind of say, hey, what do you think about this? And just kind of unpack archaeology. I think based on the comments, people would really, really enjoy that. So let me ask you one last one. Um, for sake of time, sure. we'll kind of jump in there. You, you'd say the evidence points towards not only having the birthplace of Jesus, Bethlehem, the city he grew up in, Nazareth, but quote, you say, we can be sure. And to me, anytime a scholar says sure, that gives me pause because we're told to nuance things and not overstate the evidence. You said we can be sure that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, standing today in the old city of Jerusalem, marks the place where Jesus died and where he rose again. Now, obviously, where he rose again is a belief that we hold for different reasons than the site itself establishes. But you are sure that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where Jesus died. Tell us what basis that... Give us the reasons you have for such confidence in the death place of Jesus at the Holy Sepulchre. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I would say, you know, in regards to all these places that people don't forget. People don't forget. I mean, think about American history. Think about something that happened more recently, like uh, 9-11. Do you think that uh, it's been 20 years now since 9-11? Do you think that uh, Americans have forgotten, New Yorkers have forgotten what happened and where it happened? Um, everybody would agree no. Do you think they'll forget in 50 years from now? 100 years? 200 years? 300 years? They're not going to forget. They're not going to forget where those towers stood and what happened. Uh, And so as long as there are Americans in America and New Yorkers in New York, they will not forget where that event happened. And that is the key to understanding Mm. uh, the, the place where Jesus was buried and crucified is that Christians lived in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus lived in Jerusalem from the time of that event until today, unbroken except for one tiny little time period um, in the destruction, the 70 AD destruction, but they left for that destruction and came back right afterwards. Uh, They're not going to forget where Jesus, where the two most climatic events of all human history happened. And so we have the most archaeological com- com- commemoration, this stack of archaeology that I've been talking about for these other sites is there in abundance in these places. We have the most historical sources that are referring to those places. We have them in the New Testament explaining hey, you know, Joel, where hold, they are and describing hold, hold this. Yeah. Hold your thought just a second. This is crazy. But give me 30 seconds. Hang on just a second. forgot to plug in my Mac. <laughs> I was about to lose the entire stream. Uh, so keep oh yeah, going. Sure. I apologize, brother. No. So, so you have, uh, you know, John's uh, description in the gospel of John telling us how close the, the place of crucifixion and the tomb were to each other, that they were nearby, that they were in the same garden. And then you have the, the text, you know, to me, it's an incredible story. Um, where where you hear of, of what Constantine is uh, saying to do, and Eusebius is recording it all for us, and um, and so they are given the task to go and dig up 
the tomb of Jesus. And they do that. It takes two years. It's a two-year project. They got to rip down a temple that has put, been put over the site to desecrate it, to supplant it, which has uh, a statue of Jupiter over the um, tomb of Jesus and a statue of Venus over the crucifixion place. Hmm. And so the question is, is how did they know where to dig a hole for two years to find these, uh, these sites? Well, they knew because they had been desecrated and everybody knew where they were. They were under the temple that desecrated them. And so you have all the, these, you know, to me, that's the first recorded archaeological dig in Jerusalem because they're digging for something from antiquity. And so you have all this history. You have all these historical sources. You have, you, you, it doesn't look like much when you go there today because uh, the church itself, you know, everybody says the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but of course the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is Crusader. Before that, there were previous churches that were destroyed, and when an enemy comes in and destroys a church, they're going to also destroy that which it commemorates, which in this case is the tomb and the crucifixion place. And so uh, it's gone through several destructions and all those kinds of things, but but the historical sources and the archaeology is phenomenal for those sites, as you would expect, because it doesn't get any more important than those two events. And um, and so if, if we don't know historically and archaeologically where Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead, if we don't know that, we don't know nothing. You know, I mean, because we have, uh, you know, again, back to yeah. uh, Gabi Barkai, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish archaeologist, where does he believe Jesus was crucified and uh, and and buried? He would that would be a stupid question to him. It really would. He'd be right. like, what, no, that makes what sense. you don't know anything? Uh, uh, everybody knows where Jesus was crucified and buried in Jerusalem. How, do, are you brand new here? Do you not know? Have you not, you know, read the, I mean, it's that obvious. Okay. It's, uh, it's not controversial at all. Um, the whole thing between Protestants and, and so forth, looking at the, um, at the, you know, that the, the garden tomb came along and everything like that. It had a lot to do with the Reformation and the way that Protestants were being treated when they went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, OK, well, we're going to go find our own tomb over here and and uh, and and that kind of thing. And so, um, again, it's like it's like comparing a manuscript that uh, that the oldest copy of it is uh, 18 late 1800s to a manuscript that uh, that that evidence that goes back to the first century and the arch- there is no comparison, really. And so um, and, and it's important because there's so many deceptions. One of the films that I did is called uh, the Jesus Tomb Unmasked because there's this huge deception in Jerusalem which will eventually get to America, but um, that where they're claiming um, this is the tomb of Jesus over here. We found the bones of Jesus. See, and there's this whole argument. Well, if you're going to, if you're, you know, the New Testament says that they stole the body of Jesus away. Well, now we're saying we, we found where they put it, where they put his bones and all this right. kind of stuff. And so to defend against that, you really want to use the real tomb of Jesus and the real evidence you gotcha. don't want to use uh, something that that doesn't have any backing or support, and that's what we have. And I understand that it's sensitive to people. These things can be emotional because we we went and we visited the garden tomb, and and uh, we had um, a, a, an amazing experience there and everything. So then to be told 
um, well, that's not that that's not where the evidence uh, lies, you know, for the tomb of Jesus can be emotional for people. And I want to be sensitive to that and and so forth. But uh, at the same time, we want to, you know, uh, reaching a younger generation, we want to teach them the truth about where these places are and how we know those things so that they can uh, so that they can understand it and and um, and utilize it. So, yeah, that's why I'm passionate about it. Good. Well, your passion's coming. I get, through. I get passionate, you know, and, and uh, I get kind of bottled up over here. <laughs> hey, that is that is totally, totally understandable. I, vi- I appreciate your sensitivity, too. I've been to the garden tomb and everything inside of me wants to believe that's the place Absolutely. because it feels like it. you get to walk into the tomb. There was the cliff before it fell recently that looked like a skull. I mean, it just matched what you want it to be like. Yeah. But truth has to be supreme, and I appreciate you promote that. And there are a ton well, and, of questions. Oh, go ahead. And think, just think about this, though, for a second. You know, um, what would you expect the tomb of Jesus, knowing human nature, to be like 2,000 years later? Would you expect it to be a nice, peaceful garden where the birds are singing and, and a nice place that you could worship? Or would you think that, uh, would you expect it to be a place of absolute mad chaos where people are bringing their cultures and their beliefs and their rituals from all over the world to this place? And that's what you have in the, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is madness, craziness. But it in itself is is also evidence that um, that this is the place, you know. That's such a good point. What would we expect knowing human nature? Because I've been to Bethlehem, you know, the church where they believe he's born right over the spot. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, there's the church, I forget, the Annunciation of Mary, I forget the title of it, um, that's right next to what's believed to be Garden the of Gethsemane. Church of all nations, yeah. Oh, like I said, Church of All Nations, I'm kidding. That's yeah. exactly what it is. And there's this sense where we're not comfortable with this just not earthly powerful and humble ruler, and we still want to make him in our image. Now, I understand that beautiful churches are bringing a reverence and a respect. I get that point. But there's still the sense where we kind of want to make Jesus into somebody that he never was. And I, that tension is very uh, interesting uh. to me when you visit those sites. Well, Joel, I got to tell you, there's a ton of questions that are coming up here for you about the Garden Tomb. Uh, we didn't get to the Copper Scrolls, about your thoughts on the Ark. Um, if you're okay, then we'll have you back and we'll just do an archaeological Q&A and we will open it up for folks. We've had a good number stream in and I think they would really enjoy hearing your opinions on that. So those of you, quite a few of you gave some positive comments appreciating Joel's work. One thing you could do is just support him. His new book called Where God Came Down. Can I tell you where God came down? It's excellent. It's interesting. I'm sharing it with my kids. I was telling my wife about some of the things last night that as much as I've studied this, I didn't know. So pick up a copy of Where God Came Down, and that's one way. Do a book review for him. You can just kind of spread the word and support what Joel is doing. If you've enjoyed this interview, give us a thumbs up. Make sure you hit the subscribe button because here's some of the other interviews we have coming up. We have come up with a medical doctor soon on near-death experiences. Barna is releasing a second part to the Gen Z study. The Gen Z study they did was has sold more copies than any other study from Gen Z that they put into a monograph. 
part two comes out and we're going to have the first interview on some of that data uh, next week talking to uh, Rachel Joy Welcher about purity culture and have an interesting discussion there Lee Strobel Nancy Piercy we got a lot of interesting guests coming on uh, so make sure you hit subscribe the notification and this channel is brought to you in partnership with Biola Apologetics we are now fully online so if you have ever thought about getting a master's degree from really anywhere in the world and you have an undergrad degree we would love to help train and partner with you uh, to be a resource to the church. There's information below. So, Joel, hang on. Don't don't disappear. you got to be falling asleep because it's so late there in Jordan. <laughs> uh, but to the rest of you, and thanks for coming in. Thanks for great questions. And somebody jokingly said they'd pitch in to get me a new Avengers shirt. I am always up for new superhero shirts. <laughs> so uh, bring it on. I'm welcome to that one. All right, everybody. God bless. Have a, have a great rest of your day. <laughs>